Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Welcome back. You would hope that once a violent insurrection is put down and its leaders are done away with, that the followers would dissolve or see the error of their ways. But what if it doesn't play out that way? We'll be discussing that today as we discuss Alma's chapters 4 and 5. We'll also talk about how to make a difference, or more specifically, what Alma did to make a difference. At the end of the last video, I asked a trivia question which is relevant for today's discussion. Alma was the first chief judge over the people of Nephi. Who was the second? Who was the second chief judge of the Nephites? In a few minutes at the end of Alma chapter 4, we'll find Alma stepping down as the chief judge and appointing a man named Nephiha to take his place. We'll discuss that more when we get to it. But the answer to the question is, the name of the second chief judge of the Nephites was Nephiha. The last video introduced us to two important characters. The first was Nehor. He was a charismatic religious leader who was executed for murdering an elderly man who disagreed with him. And Amlicai, a man with a large following who tried to overthrow the government and he died in battle. And you would think that these types of events, an insurrection for example, would serve as a wake-up call. In the sixth year of the reign of the judges, so in the sixth year the Nephites struggled and tried to recover from the war with the Amlicites and the Lamanites. The war had resulted in lost family members, trampled crops, and the destruction of flocks and herds. Verse 3, And so great were their afflictions that every soul had cause to mourn. And they believed it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. Therefore, they were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. What surprises me about this is that the Nephites believed themselves guilty of wickedness and abominations. Alma 1, which ended in the fifth year, described the Nephites as living righteously and being more prosperous than those who did not belong to the church. So maybe this verse that they felt that they were being punished for their wickedness was referring more to the Nephites who were outside of the church and who had been persecuting the church's followers. That would make more sense to me. And because this group wanted to repent, church membership grew. Verse 5 tells us that in the seventh year, 3,500 souls were baptized and there was continual peace throughout the land. No sooner did the people begin to prosper again the very next year, the eighth year in fact, they became proud of their achievements and began to show off. Nehor had been known for wearing very costly apparel, and his ostentatious clothing might have made people more fashion conscious. Nehor's followers had persecuted church members, who the narrator described as being neat and comely, rather than wearing costly apparel. Perhaps now, Church members felt that they deserved a break from feeling poor, or maybe they saw nothing wrong with wearing expensive clothing that 
they had worked hard to be able to afford. But verse 6 describes the wearing of costly apparel as a symptom of being, quote, lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Throughout the Book of Mormon, there's a pattern among the Nephites. It happens so consistently that it is sometimes called the Nephite cycle. If you search the church's website, you can find an image of this cycle. Destruction and suffering lead to humility and repentance. Repentance leads to righteousness and prosperity. Prosperity leads to pride and wickedness, which lead to destruction and suffering, and the cycle repeats itself. Now, an interesting, consistent pattern that we notice throughout the Book of Mormon is that when people prosper, the first symptom of pride and wickedness is that they began to wear expensive clothing. We see this in Jacob 2.13, Alma 4.6, Alma 5.53, 4th Nephi, chapter 1, verse 24, Mormon, chapter 8, verse 36. Why is costly apparel such an important indicator, and why is it the first sign of pride? In my opinion, it's because it signals a change of focus. It signals a shift from thinking about others to thinking about oneself. Disciples of Jesus Christ should be characterized by charity, which Moroni defines in Moroni chapter 7, verse 47, as the pure love of Christ. Citizens of the city of Enoch, taken up to heaven because of its righteousness, were characterized as being of one heart and one mind, and it says, there was no poor among them. Jacob chapter 2, verse 17, describes a similar uh, mindset. Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. If we genuinely hope for others to share in our prosperity, as Jacob chapter 2 indicates that we should, we will get no satisfaction from outdressing or outperforming another person. As C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it, than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone." End quote. We can see charity at work in a loving family. Parents rejoice when their children are successful. There's no competition. They want their children to be more successful than they were. Such families see themselves as a unit, and when someone in the family does well, everyone sees it as a win. When someone struggles, everyone is concerned. Although everyone in the family must grow and face their own challenges, help is never far away. There is no envy or resentment when a sibling or a parent or a child does well. Such family dynamics, in my opinion, might be the best example of what the pure love of Christ looks and feels like. But returning to the Nephites, they were envious of each other's success. I'm always amazed by how quickly the Nephites forget God and stray from the gospel. The Amlicite rebellion happened in the sixth or seventh year of the reign of the judges. Thousands repented and were baptized into the church, but by the eighth year, the next year, things had changed. Verse 9, And thus, in this eighth year, the reign of the judges, there began to be great contentions among the people of the church. There were envyings and strife and malice, and persecutions and pride, even to exceed the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. A year later, things were even worse. And it came to pass in the commencement of the ninth year, Alma saw the wickedness of the church 
And he saw also that the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers on from one piece of iniquity to another, thus bringing on the destruction of the people. Yea, he saw great inequality among the people, some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked, and those who were hungry and those who were thirst, and those who were sick and afflicted. One thing that bothers me about the so-called Nephite cycle is that frequently when people talk about it at church, they talk about cyclical righteousness as if it's just an unavoidable part of being human. But it's not unavoidable, and it's not universal. When we get into the book of Helaman, we meet large groups of people who remained righteous regardless of prosperity or circumstance. Even here in Alma 4, we see that not everybody reverts to selfish behavior when times are good. Instead of ignoring suffering, from verse 13, others were abasing themselves, succoring those who stood in need of their succor, such as imparting their substance to the poor and the needy, feeding the hungry and suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake, who should come according to the spirit of prophecy. In my opinion, the Nephite cycle isn't simply part of human nature. It's a specific pattern of behavior of the unconverted. That's just my opinion. Alma was so discouraged by his people's behavior that he resigned as the chief judge. We'll talk about his motives in just a minute. He searched among the church's elders for a suitable replacement and eventually found Nephi Ha and, quote, gave him power according to the voice of the people. I don't know what that phrase means exactly. As the chief judge, having been elected by a vote, did Alma have the authority to name his own successor or did the voice of the people ratify his selection of Nephi Ha? The underlying political process is somewhat cloudy to me, but it seems that the position of chief judge was typically a lifetime appointment. The few elections that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon are typically to replace a chief judge who has died. In the case of Amlesai, the election was about whether they should continue having the system of judges or if they should reestablish monarchy with Amlesai as king. But Alma's actions, aren't they interesting? In today's world, we talk a lot and put a heavy focus on getting righteous leaders elected. And that's definitely important. But here we have Alma, who was the highest ranking political official in the country, stepping down from his political role so he can actually be more effective and do some good. Why did Alma give up his judgment seat? From an engineering perspective, it looks like Alma did what we call a root cause analysis trying to find, okay, what is the problem behind the problem behind the problem? And the root cause of the people's wickedness was that they hadn't been converted. So their faithfulness depended on their circumstances. Or as Mormon summarized in verse 19, and this he did that he himself might go forth among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, and that he might pull down by the word of God, all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. So as the high priest, Alma went on a preaching tour. He began right where he lived in the capital city of Zarahemla. I commented in a previous episode when we were first introduced to Alma the Younger that he had to be an incredible, remarkable individual. He had won a general election, and that requires a certain amount of charisma and popularity. I bring this up because 
in Alma 5, we get to experience Alma's preaching for ourselves. Verse 2 says that Alma 5 contains Alma's own words, quote, according to his own record. And as a result, Alma 5 is one of the most powerful chapters in the Book of Mormon. Friends have told me that they turn to this chapter when they're feeling bad or if they need to self-evaluate or if they need a wake-up call. It's also the second longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, right behind Jacob chapter 5. So we're not going to be able to read all of it or even most of it. But I would encourage you at some point to go offline and read through it in its entirety and experience Alma's sermon for yourself. In Alma chapter 5, Alma addresses his people. Although they were drifting from the gospel path, as we talked about in chapter 4, he did not scold or condemn them. He began by reviewing the conversion of Alma, his father, who had been among the priests of King Noah. And he talked about the conversion of the parents of the people in the audience when they had heard Alma's teachings. Quote, he preached the word unto your fathers, and a mighty change was also wrought in their hearts. And behold, they were faithful unto the end, therefore they were saved. He then asked one of the chapter's central questions in verse 14. And now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? But he wasn't finished. He continued with more questions, some of which I'll cite here. I say unto you, can you imagine to yourselves that ye hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, come unto me, ye blessed, for behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. I say unto you, can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? I say unto you, can you look up, having the image of God engraven upon your countenances? Moving to verse 22. And now I ask of you, my brethren, how will any of you feel if ye shall stand before the bar of God, having your garments stained with blood and all manner of filthiness? Behold, what will these things testify against you? He then asked a second important question in verse 26. And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? In my opinion, the reason Alma's sermon resonates so well with modern readers is because rather than addressing the specific sins of the day, he addressed the patterns of behavior that we all tend to experience. Our challenge in this mortal life is to become like our Savior, to be as good as we can be. But as mortals, we all stumble and we all drift from the course. So with verse 26, he invites us to consider we've had moments where things were in order and when we felt the Spirit. But the question is, as we just read, can we feel so now? After testifying of Jesus Christ in verse 44, Alma asks this question, and this is not all. Do ye suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? So here Alma is asking his audience to guess. How do you suppose that I know that these things are true? And I'll ask you the same question. How did Alma know that the gospel was true? I'll be honest, my initial reaction was to think, well, it's because you saw an angel. 
Back in Mosiah 27, an angel had appeared to Alma and had spoken to him with such force and thunder that it made the ground shake. And here's a snippet from Mosiah 27, verse 14. The Lord has heard the prayers of his people and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father. For he has prayed with much faith concerning thee that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, for this purpose have I come to convince thee of the power and authority of God that the prayers of his servants might be answered according to their faith. Now, roughly a decade later, Alma asked the audience, how do you suppose that I know that these things are true? He gives his answer in verse 46. Behold, I say unto you that they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit, and this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. Even though he had been visited by an angel, an angel sent specifically to convince him of the power and authority of God, Alma had to build his testimony the same way that all of us do. The angel had been a wake-up call that he gained a testimony by fasting and praying, and his testimony was, as he said, from the Holy Spirit. When he was talking about how he knew the gospel was true, he didn't even mention the angel. Here's something to think about. If you were Alma, standing at the pulpit on Testimony Sunday, bearing your testimony, would you have talked about the impressive, miraculous experience of being visited by an angel? Or would you have done as he did and said that you knew these things to be true as the result of fasting and prayer? Alma ended his sermon by way of command to the church members in his congregation and by way of invitation to those who were not yet members. Come and be baptized under repentance that ye may also be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life. Again, Alma 5, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful chapters in the Book of Mormon and I'd invite you to take a few minutes to read it and also take a minute to ask of yourself, how do I know what I know to be true? It's time for our trivia question. In, in the next video, Alma's preaching tour continues. He preaches at the city of Gideon, named after the man who was slain by Nehor in the last video. And then he traveled west, crossed the river Sidon, and preached at Melech. And from there, he went three days north to a city that would reject him. What was the name of that city? What was the name of the city that rejected Alma? That's all we have for today, and we will see you next time.